Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Greetings, feely humans. Welcome to the show. My name is Known Wells, and I am here to be vulnerable in a feely space with my heart leading toward you and your heart. We are facing our hearts together, kind of like Care Bears with their Care Bear stare, but with our hearts. And today on the show, episode 32, I chat with Sianna Stewart about complaining and how it impacts our mental health, plus what unhealthy complaints are versus healthy complaints, complaining in the brain, and the work that Sianna is doing in the No Complaining Project. Sianna had a period of loss and and sort of waywardness, and uh, she found herself again through researching complaining and how it impacts our mental health. And she's done a lot of amazing research. And I really enjoyed this conversation. She is, she is, she's great. So I, I hope you enjoy it too. But before we get to the episode, I'd like to remind you, please leave Yumi Empathy a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's a very easy thing to do. And uh, I'd like to see more reviews so I can read them here on the show. Wouldn't that be fun? Answer, yes, it would. And uh, follow Yumi Empathy on Instagram, Twitter, at Yumi Empathy. And please go check out the No Complaining Project. It's awesome. And pick up a copy of Sienna's book, No Complaints. Okay. Enjoy this episode. Episode 32 on how complaining impacts our mental health with Sienna Stewart. podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being human. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. 
Today, I am thrilled to dive into the empathy waters on the topic of complaining with author, happiness seeker, and creator of the No Complaining Project, Sianna Stewart. Hello, Sianna. Hi, Nan. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Um, so, listeners, today we are talking about complaining, probably a topic that we are all intimately aware of and have lots of experience with because we are, after all, humans, and we will get into that in just a moment. But as we always do, let's do an emotional check-in. How, how are you doing, Sienna? I'm doing well today. I am uh, having it. It was been an interesting week. I had an incredibly difficult work week a couple of weeks ago, which takes me up into my headspace. I, I produce corporate events for a living. And um, as in addition to the book world, and so I'm trying to do both at the same time. And that sort of sense of busyness kind of took me out of uh, feeling very much. It was just very functional. Mm. And the last week has been, you know, a, a time of me coming back into the, I finished a very successful show and then I came back and then slept and then started to notice like all of the rest of my world and all the feels came up of, I should be doing more things and oh my God, I'm just so tired and yay, the show went well. It was just like everything hit at once. <laughs> and so it's been an interesting week of um, many things like that. And uh, this morning I'm, I'm feeling really good and I'm back in my house and I'm, you know, getting things uh, more squared away. So uh, it's, yeah, it's been kind of a, uh, an interesting time. I find that Almost every time after I've had a big work project or a big push, you know, even even on the book, like finishing the writing, I'm just like, okay, I got to edit, 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 edit. I get up in my brain. And then the following week is like, wow, there's a lot of emotions under there. How about that? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting. The, do you often find yourself uh, feeling like you need to do more and more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have a very, very... Uh, driving inner critic and a feeling of um, there's always more that I should be doing that I could be doing um, and uh, a lot of pushing myself as sort of my go-to uh, inside voice yeah I, I relate to that I, I think for me it comes from a place of you know Probably in in some respects, you know, a good sort of positive drive to want to make an impact on the world. But mm -hmm. in other areas, you know, comparing myself to others, uh, you know, and that's that's never good comparing yourself to others. Yeah. 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 And I have the twin things. I don't know if you have this also where I feel extremely fortunate for many of the advantages that I was just luckily born into. And um you know, my, my parents encouraged education. I have a very healthy functioning brain. Um, I am extremely curious. And, and so there's a lot of stuff around me that's available for, you know, I, I grew up in an, I was born into an urban environment in the United States. And so there's a lot of places for me to exert that curiosity. Like all of that stuff makes me feel really lucky. And so then I feel this obligation to use it. Mm. Um, and so many other people don't have those advantages. And so, you know, I shouldn't squander my opportunities. And, you know, it's a, I don't know if you've got that too, but that's part of the voice in my head. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I, I do have that a bit. And I think that's an important voice because we, we do often so get so insular and um, 
in our own heads and we forget about what else, you know, what other sort of frameworks people grow up with. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to remember that because A, it's humbling and, and B, you know, we, you know, I, I'm a white male born in Southern California. I'm certainly privileged compared to many. And it, it is important to remember that that place and to not squander the advantages I've I've had. And I, I think, yeah, I think that's an important thing to remember for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the interesting, one of the interesting things when I've talked to people in the past who've been trying to work on actually developing their empathy for other people or trying to keep in mind and get a good sense of their level of privilege compared to other people, um, that there's a sense of guilt and obligation that comes along with it. And that's like right on its heels. Um, and, uh, and I, I feel like it's, it is also important to find a way to still be kind to yourself and know that everybody, you still have your own emotions and your own struggles. And it doesn't mean you're exempt from feeling bad or feeling hard on yourself or having a hard time. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a way that it's like, yes, you do have those advantages and you're, it's understandable if you don't feel great all the time. Like that's, that's just normal. That's just being human. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important point and something we've mentioned on the show a number of times, but I think it bears repeating because we do, um, we do, it's like a stigma thing. It's like this weird social pressure where we think like, oh, we have these advantages. uh, Therefore we need to, you know, sort of be buttoned up and not sort of show our emotions and show our vulnerability and show our struggles. There, there, there is, I think, a weird social pressure there. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, it, it's interesting that in the introduction, you described me as a happiness seeker. Mm-hmm. And there's a way that I have a difficult time with, you know, what can be termed the happiness industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's because I also find, uh, have you talked about spiritual bypass on this show? No. Um, so, so there's, there's this way that people who are driven to feel happy all the time are just, you know, like, oh, I'm only going to think positive thoughts. And I, and I certainly, you know, sort of bridging now into talking about the book that there's, there's a way that I can get pigeonholed because I'm focusing on complaining with the people who are all positive thinker people. Um, and, and it's absolutely not my goal. Like I'm not in the industry of you should only think happy thoughts because I think that that's unrealistic. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of, you know, not all of the people that are, that are in the self-help joy, happiness, uh, work are folk are those kinds of people, but they're the, but a lot of the most famous and the most prominent people are in the, you know, just think happy thoughts and don't let the negative thoughts come. And, you know, just that that will turn your life around and then you'll be happy all the time. And I feel that it's, it does a disservice to people that, you know, because the truth is that life is always happening and sometimes it doesn't go well. Right. And like, there's always going to be a surprise. And my goal is to give people tools so that they can become more resilient. And, you know, you can feel those feels that are not not good ones or that are hard ones. Maybe they're all good, but in some of them are just really hard to take, but you can also get through them more quickly if you have more tools and you have more practice. Um, yes. 
she, you know, again, you just like, like working out at a gym, you just keep practicing what it's like to actually get through something as opposed to ignoring something. And so spiritual bypasses, like, I'm just not going to look at that. Like, oh, okay, maybe that bad thing is happening over there, but I'm going to just say all the happy words and just not, not say any of the bad words. And, um, and I think ultimately it actually can lead to like, everything comes crashing down because you haven't, you haven't practiced getting through it for real. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's so uh, well said. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm realizing in doing this show and, and just my own sort of mental health journey is it's a tremendously complex space, right? Depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, all these, all these things are very complex. You know, even the science is still trying to, to understand things and mm-hmm. to, to, to sort of pigeonhole that framework or to frame that into this, I call it, you know, just kind of like this narrow-minded thinking. Uh, we like to, as humans, I mention this all the time on the show, but we like to, as humans, put things in boxes, easily mm-hmm. check them. Uh, it's it's easier, right? Because it's, it's, it gives us a sense of, I'm doing something, I, okay, I understand this because it's in this, this easily sort of digestible little sort of, I don't know, Instagram story or whatever, like it's just, it's, but it's not, you know, there, there is some value in that, but it's not that easy and it's not that, it's not that simple. And I think it it is important to look at the whole picture and understand that, yeah, all of your feelings are very valid and we, and we should use those and develop the tools, as you say, to, to understand them and understand where they're coming from. And if we're blocking that off, then we're not going to we're not going to learn those lessons and glean those insights, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, That's I'm Exactly. You're I love that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, I'm I'm I I do we'll get into your book, but I first want to give a little update for my listeners. I uh so my update this week is I I usually have therapy every 2 weeks on Thursday nights at therapy this week. It was a really good session and I I was thinking about I've been reading, Sienna, I've been reading this book forever. I like resumed it this week on a hike, but I've been reading uh, this book by Bessel van der Kolk on, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. It's about how we hold trauma in our bodies. It's really good, uh, very dense, but very, very, just quite stunning. And he was talking about the, how fallible memories are, especially when it pertains to familial trauma. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've talked about on the show and I've written about my familial trauma and, and, you know, my experience with my eating disorder in my late teens and early twenties and, and that trauma and, and the suicidal ideation of that experience and stuff. And I had this thought as I was listening to this book again about specifically my father, who I don't speak to anymore. And I had this sort of like weird sort of project into the future where, and I was talking about this with my therapist, you know, I'm, I'm sort of envisioning him like on his deathbed and, and me maybe there. And we were talking about like, what would that look like? How can I get there? Can I be there? And I, I, I ultimately ended up that therapy session um, sort of coming to terms with the idea that like, 
I am open to that. Like, I don't think at this stage in my life, I'm ready for that now. But I, I do, I sort of left that door open. And I think that's, I'm going to call that oh. a little bit of growth mentally and emotionally for myself and understanding that I don't have control over what he does. Uh, but I do have control over some of the impact he can make on me. Mm-hmm. You know, wow! I did. I just want to take a moment and appreciate you for that because I think any time that we can soften an edge like that or be open to something that we were so fixed about before, that's a that's a real possibility for you know whether whether or not anything happens um, that you're shifting in that way means that something else is going to be possible for you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, that's just amazing. So that sounds like a lot of, a lot of work and also just a lot of, uh, kindness to yourself. In oh, your doing that. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, Sienna, let's, I, we're going to talk about complaining, but I first want to understand, uh, a little bit about your story and, and maybe some seminal moments that kind of lay the groundwork for your study and insights into complaining. So maybe some of the experiences that, you know, I know you've talked about this before, but I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork to tell the story of like how you got to the No Complaining Project. Sure. I, I think it is a very good context <laughs> to have. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't spent my whole life as like a, an insanely negative person. I would say that I was more in the sort of average category of, you know, I complained and then I didn't complain. And, you know, there's like, there are people in the world who are completely stuck and entrenched. And, um, and I wasn't one of those growing up. Um, I was mostly just a loner and then, you know, a book nerd and, um, and, uh, my people. you know, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, who are your friends? I was like, Sherlock Holmes. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so that was, you know, kind of the way that I grew up in a very, very, uh, like I said, an intellectual household. Um, and fast forward to many years later, um, I ended up in a relationship that, you know, was really amazing. And um, I was uh, deeply committed to it. And I was made a huge uh, bunch of life choices, including the decision to leave the country. Um, and you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff wrapped up in that relationship. And then it all came crashing down really suddenly. Um, and uh, in the process, I ended up, you know, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a lot of my things anymore. I didn't. I'd moved away from my friends and, you know, it was just like, everything was, uh, really difficult. So predictably I went into, I fell into a pretty insane depression and I had been, uh, a little prone to that anyway, growing up. Um, but then, you know, this was just, I, I just kind of shut down and, and felt like, I don't know what to do with myself. And, um, one of my friends described me as it was like the the button, the on button had been turned off mm-hmm. on me. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm usually somebody who just has so much going on. And I'm like, I'm really, cause I said, I'd be like really curious about things. I'm always trying new things or whatever. And this one, I just, I just shut down and like sat in a single a place for a while. And then I would pick myself up like a month later and go stay at another house. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. Um, 
And uh, now jump forward a few months after that, my friends were the ones who really rescued me and, and helped me by, you know, saying, you can stay at my house, you know, just come back to the Bay Area. Um, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and mostly grew up here. And, um, and so I have a community here and they said, come on back. Um, of course, you're still welcome here. And then they helped me find a job and they helped me get back on my feet. And, um, and the job turned out to not just be a job, but actually turned into um, a really amazing opportunity with somebody who turned into one of my mentors. Um, and it, like my whole life was just going really, really well. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and one morning I had that moment that, you know, classic epiphany thing where I was driving from my friend's house in Oakland, um, to my, uh, to my job in Berkeley, which requires going along the freeway at one point where you see San Francisco, the, the skyline come into view. Yeah. And it was early morning and like dawn light and it was so beautiful. And I just filled my heart just filled with this gratitude for being back in this place and feeling so good and, and just like, Oh my gosh, my friends are so amazing. And, and I'm so, I, I I can't believe that everything's going so well. And immediately that, as soon as I had that thought, I, I replayed the conversation I had had the night before at my friend's house where um, I had cooked dinner and uh, for them and they were they were thankful and they said, oh, that was really tasty. And my immediate response was, well, it was actually really hard because, you know, I used to have all this stuff in the kitchen and I had to give it all up. And, and I was just like, oh, I see. I, I, I couldn't even accept their, their thanks for cooking food. And so for whatever reason that morning, that conversation immediately hit my mind. And then it was like this wash of other conversations over the last few months where a very similar thing had happened where somebody was trying to say something nice. And I immediately responded with complaining about myself, about what I thought I was going to have, all the things I had given up, all the, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I realized that my life had been going really well for a while, but I hadn't even noticed. And that just, that just broke me. Hmm. And That's in a new way, moving. a really good way. <laughs> yeah, it was an incredible moment. And, uh, and it was at that moment that I, that I had a little fight with myself. And I basically was like, that's it. No more complaining for you. I can't believe that you can't even show gratitude to your friends. And they've been so good to you. No more complaining. That's an amazing um, insight. And I think probably pretty difficult to get there for some, you know, I want to mm-hmm. call out, you know, the, the, well, I, I want to understand like what, what did your depression look like? Like, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're finding yourself in, in, in these scenarios where you're, you know, just defaulting to, to complaining and, and looking at things from that framework, but mm-hmm. how, how else did it manifest in you? Yeah, I well I felt like the the complaining period was me coming out of the depression. Um and cuz that that was more the the part that I was thinking about was more once I actually returned to the Bay Area and was working again and you know was that things were going well. Um my depression after the breakup um so I'm I have a hard time like crying in front of other people and you know that's not that's not easy for me. Um 
And, uh, and so I found myself like hiding away a lot. And like, as soon as I would get separated from my, I was staying at my dad's house for a moment. I was staying at my brother's house for a moment. I house sat for my stepbrother for a little bit. Um, and I would just sit by myself and just start bawling. Um, and I would, I had like no creativity. I just, you know, I ended up, uh, I, I learned how to crochet, um, during this period, which was actually kind of a good thing. Like it gave me something to do. Um, but it was also just because that was something it was like repetitive and small. And so I would sit in like semi lit rooms and just like crochet endlessly. Um, and just taught like not talk to people. Hmm. Um, uh, I ended up actually, uh, leaving the country for a little bit, um, to go, uh, you know, which was, which was, one of those fortunate things, the ticket that I was going to use, um, in order to, uh, join, join my beloved, um, was, uh, I rerouted it to go take, I was like, I'm just going to go study Spanish. I want to go to a place where I cannot communicate with anybody so that nobody can ask me any questions. Oh, um, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And it's because I get into this mode where I'm like, I can't feel what I'm feeling because it's too painful. And so I'd rather do something. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm like, I'll, if I just stay in my head, I think I'm going to be fine. Um, you know, it's my way of getting through stuff, which was not, it was cool to learn some Spanish, um, but it was not healthy to, all it did was delay actually feeling things. Sure. Um, but it's but, fascinating. Uh, it's like a fascinating yeah. uh, step in your journey to understanding what you were going through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And each time I've I've gone into some form of grief, um, usually around people dying. Um, I find that one of my key immediate steps is to, to go into doing. Mm. Um, and I just want to like fix things around me and clean the house or take care of other people or something that just kind of pushes away the moment when I have to stay still. And cause when I stay still, then I actually feel everything. Um, right. So, so then it was kind of this crazy thing where I, where I kept moving and moving and then I came back and then I stayed so still and I felt everything and then I just got stuck. Um, and, uh, and that was when uh, my friend described me as like the, the button had been turned off. Yeah. It, you know, and it sounds like the, that complaining period and, and right before you had that epiphany on the bridge, was the, that was a step toward... Um, sort of that insight that you had? Because, I mean, it sounds mm -hmm. like you were in a place before that where you couldn't describe anything. You you go to a place where they don't even speak your language. And then almost like this interesting next step, you're, you're complaining and you are sort of describing your depression and your, you know, what you're experiencing mm -hmm. emotionally, just not in, in a way that's healthy. Right. And then you have this epiphany. I think that's a like a beautiful transition in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderfully described. Yeah. So I what, think that's right. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, you know, after you had this epiphany, what, what kind of, what did it look like after that? What are, what are some next sort of emotional steps you took? Well, it was kind of this funny thing because 
I thought, oh, here's a decision that I can make and then I'd be done. <laughs> which, which of course is never how it actually works. Um, so I, uh, made this decision, um, and then became immediately and rather painfully embarrassingly aware of what percentage of my conversation was complaining mm. because suddenly since I had decided to, to never complain, I had, um, a really difficult time talking. Um, and, uh, you know, people would get, try to engage me in conversation and I, I would just immediately think of these complaining things and I'd say, no, I, no complaining. So I, I just have to stop talking for a while. So for a while I actually ended up, went back into some weird isolation where there was too many conversations where I just wanted to complain. So I just would exit the conversations. Um, and, uh, as a result of staying quiet, um, I was hearing more about what other people were saying. And then I realized that almost everybody complains a lot. Mm. Um, and then I was also hearing how people would complain about people who complained a lot. Um, people are often complaining about complainers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then my nerd brain went into overdrive. And I was like, okay, what is going on? People are doing a thing that they hate in other people and everybody's doing it and yet everybody seems to not like it. What is going on? So that then kicked me into a analytical stage and that's the thing that really fueled the rest, the next 10 years. Um, and I started studying um, communication and uh you know, sort of a positive psychology and the psychology of rumination. And because rumination is actually like as described as one of the closer things to complaining um, in the psychological literature. Um, I also studied leadership. I studied how to handle difficult conversations and, you know, how to address problems when they're hard. And, you know, I just, I just went into, like I said, overdrive and just started really, really working on um, the, understanding mm -hmm. of what it was happening in society as well as what was happening in myself. And then I also went deeper into learning more about myself and um, my own patterns and, you know, trying to unlock the stuff that I was complaining about because it very, it came very clear to me that complaining was really just symptomatic of something else. Right. And so then I, then I got curious about like, well, what is that something else? How do I deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's two things I want to bring up. The first is that isn't it so interesting that you know, you use the example of like complainers complaining about complainers, you know? Um mm -hmm. and that's such a that's such a fascinating thing because I think it's so, so true on you know, we do that so often as humans. We we forget about what we're doing. You know, it's so easy to just kind of ignore how we're experiencing the world and, and ignoring our emotions and just kind of projecting ourselves onto others. And I think that's yeah. an important lesson to remind ourselves like, hey, look, look at yourself. How how are you experiencing the world? Um, I think that's an important <laughs> reminder, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the more powerful things that I learned in this whole period was that often the things that bother us the most emotionally um, 
and that we judge in other people are the things that we don't like about ourselves. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise it wouldn't get to us. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, and then we, we, you know, even if we don't want to admit it, we also understand a bit of it and we, we kind of, you know, know the things in ourselves that like annoy us. And so it's, it's very apparent in others, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's very true. (laughs) <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention, and I think it's such a beautiful thing, is you took this experience in your life where you had this, you know, this this trauma, this relational trauma, and you went through this period of complaining, and you took this this experience into you to use your nerd brain which is amazing and i love nerd brains <laughs> uh <laughs> and you took it to both a like you know uh help you know help yourself to learn more to to grow emotionally and, and uh, for yourself and then also like to to impact others and i think that is an important lesson in, in and of itself is like the the knowledge we pursue as individuals doesn't have to be this sort of singular like i'm learning for myself like it has so many like avenues we can take it to bring it to others and i think that's yeah. such a beautiful thing that you're doing now yeah yeah and that was not at all my intention in the start of it as you've you've gathered it's you know i was just like i need to figure out my own thing and you know i had a personal blog back in the day. Um, and, uh, uh, I have, you know, like a handful of friends that read the stuff that I wrote there. And so after three years of this thing of not complaining, and I actually didn't tell anybody that I was doing it. Um, I was just like really curious on my own and I was working on my own stuff and then I was feeling better and better and better. Um, and I attributed it to the focus on complaining because it was to me extremely useful as a daily trigger because it was so everywhere around me um, and it was so easy to recognize myself that um, that I, I found it useful to as a marker for me to get curious about, well, what other emotions are happening? Like what, what am I actually upset about? What is the underlying feeling here that is really getting to me? And so I found it just as a useful thing. And I wrote about it in my blog and I was like, Hey guys, you know, I've been doing this thing for the last three years and it's really cool and it's really changed me and I feel great about it. And, um, I just wanted to tell you that, um, you know, I'm much better now (laughs) basically. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and it was really very personally focused. Um, and uh, several of my friends were like, wow, that's cool that, you know, you did that. So amazing. And yada, da. And then like a month later, a few of them wrote back and were like, okay, So I was inspired by your story and I tried to do it myself, but I can't stop complaining and I don't understand how to deal with other people's complaints. And what the heck did you do? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so that's actually how the teaching started. It was because other people were trying it, um, based on what I had gone through. And then as I started teaching people and sharing my own understanding, um, it really, really helped several people with some very big big things going on in their lives, big emotional stuff. Um, and, uh, and that's when I got much more inspired to share it more widely and actively. And so it's, it's really, I've been very grateful that I, you know, sort of stumbled on this thing that is so easy to understand and yet so powerful, um, that 
that I'd be like, how can I not share this? This is this is very cool. Yeah, it is really cool. So I want to um, first kind of uh, as kind of the lead into what you're doing for the No Complaining Project. I want to define what for our listeners define what a complaint is. Yeah. Um, I have a pretty specific definition because I have made a demarcation between healthy and unhealthy complaining. Okay. And um, unhealthy complaining is expressing a dissatisfaction without contributing to resolving the problem. So it's that second part that's actually not in the dictionaries, the, the without contributing to resolving the problem. And, you know, uh, so when we talk about like filing a complaint or a complaint department or that sort of thing, we're really only just talking about the first part, expressing a dissatisfaction. But if you're talking to somebody who can actually solve your problem, like you're calling customer service so that you can actually file a complaint and get the issue resolved, that's great. That's I'm all for that. Mm. Um, and I think that that is a very healthy thing. When you're not calling customer service, but you're complaining to your spouse, your brother, your coworker, your whatever, somebody who can't do anything about it, um, and just unleashing your, you know, negative thoughts and, and dissatisfaction on them, uh, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And and or if you're talking vaguely, like if you if you call customer service. I don't, I don't know if the, any political party has a customer service department, but you just sort of <laughs> vaguely like, you know, said like, oh, I, I hate the partisan system. Yeah. Like that's way too big and it's not actually contributing to anything. So you might have called somebody who might be able to do something about it. You made it too vague or people who are like, oh, traffic sucks. You know, that's um, a common is, one. Yeah. Like, we're both in super urban areas. That's a very common one. Yep. Um, and here in San Francisco, we get the extra like, oh, parking was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, generally we're talking to somebody who can do nothing about it, you know. Um, and so to me, that's the stuff that ultimately wears down on relationships. It wears down on um, your your own mental state, you're actually kind of casting yourself in this role of victim of like, Oh, poor me suffering from this thing that I actually am not going to do anything about. Um, and that to me is where the unhealthy part of complaining happens is you, if you do these complaints over and over and over again, the message that you're sending out to the world and actually ultimately to yourself is that, you're powerless to change things, that you're actually having to tolerate a lot of things in your world that are unsatisfying to you, but you're not even self-empowered enough to figure out a strategy to address them, um, and that you just have to keep tolerating them. And that is a, that's a painful way to live. And it is ultimately eroding uh, your sense of self, yeah. um, and, and your confidence and, uh, and it contributes to your stress and it, you know, makes other people think of you as less of a leader or less capable. Um, it can erode a relationship. Like if you do that constantly within a long-term relationship, then the other person is just kind of like, well, are you going to do something about it? No, no, no. Oh, you're still not doing anything about it. Actually, the only choice that I have now is to actually care about you a little bit less mm. because, it's hard for me to hear somebody that I love 
tear themselves down like that or not do anything as su- or to just suffer so much. Um, and, uh, and so that's all the stuff that I'm like, oh, okay, we have to, we have to do something about this. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I th- like I'm so, I mean, I've seen that so much in my life. What do you say to like, you know, I was just thinking about like a specific situation where, you know, I've experienced this with my partner where one of us, you know, presents a complaint or a sort of dissatisfaction with a scenario that they've experienced. And the intent of that person is just, I need to get this out and I want mm-hmm. you to listen and not comment. Like, is there value in that? Or are you saying like, we need to have that, that the intent needs to be that we need to, you know, come to some conclusion or find a solution for this, this issue. Yeah. There's two different scenarios that are kind of folded into what you're talking about. Um, again, so warning nerd brain, super parsing out all of the little details of everything. Um, so the two different scenarios are, um, one that somebody is, the problem to be solved in that situation that you're describing sounds like it's actually the emotional state. Mm. So it is not the content of what is being discussed, but it's, I feel terrible. I want to know that you can comfort me so that I feel less terrible. And so that's actually the emotional state that is the, the quote problem to be solved. Um, and the, pro- the, the, the difficulty in that is when you're listening to somebody like that, and if you respond to the content of their complaint, that's not going to solve their emotional problem. Right. And so, I've been there. That, yeah, so then you run into this real conflict. So it's like the please just listen. It's actually not really just listen and take it. It's listen, hear my feelings, comfort me in my feelings. Right. Um. And where that becomes difficult over the long term is if it's the same situation again and again, coming up to the same feelings again and again, which are exhausting to both parties, um, then there's a point at which like, we kind of have to deal with this content because this content, like the situation that keeps bringing this up, like we want to, I should, I think we should resolve this because it's it's causing you so much pain and by extension now it's causing me a lot of pain because I'm having to listen to it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of a, that you have to recognize that that's the switch that there's a, that there's a moment and it's, you know, you can't just go at like content all the time because the emotion is the, is the first thing that needs to happen and be resolved and paid attention to, um, and have empathy for. Um, and the second, the second scenario that you're raising, which is actually a really important one. So this is another, thing that's very different that I kind of landed on, which is um, I have, I place a very high value in being present with people and uh, with uh, basically trying to be transparent. If I'm, if I'm emotionally distracted by something that's very difficult and I can't focus in on being present with somebody, then I need to share that with them, you know? So uh, if you know, my, my classic example is like if I'm driving to work and I get into like a fender bender and it just was like, it stressed me out. And so then I end up arriving late to work and, you know, and I'm trying to like rush directly into a meeting and just like, ah, and I don't say anything. Like my brain is just completely consumed with 
you know, whether it's embarrassment about being late or it's anger about the fender bender or it's, you know, frustration with myself or whatever it is, or some kind of emotion that's going on. And I need to share that with the person that I'm meeting with because otherwise, like, it's just piling up in my head. It has nowhere to go and I can't be present and I can't get, I can't shake it. Hmm. So in that situation, I, um, I'm a fan of venting. And so letting people know, you know, like, I'm sorry, I just have to share this with you. This happened to me on the way in. I'm, I'm working on getting present here. Um, but just want to let you know, we don't have to talk about it. I don't want to go into it and like take away time here, but just know that I'm, I'm working on coming back to right here. You know, I'm okay. Things are fine you know, great. Okay. And then it's, it's kind of interesting because as soon as you say what's going on, it starts to evaporate. Um, you hiding it and holding on to it and trying to get through it without sharing actually makes it stronger. Hmm. So there's a way that venting can release, you know, just like a classic steam valve venting it. You just, you know, vent it a little bit and then all the pressure starts to go and then you can like come and come around and be present. Now, the trick about venting, so it's a little bit of a, okay, you can totally do that. It's great. Uh, But venting really only happens once. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, it becomes a complaint. Because what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're trying to get out of the emotional state and back into the present. Next time, you're no longer in that emotional state because you've already cleared through it. But now you're telling somebody the story again and you're reinvigorating that emotional state, but you actually didn't have it before you started the conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's a complaint. Yeah. Well, and the, even just like there's a very stark difference between the complaints that you've described and then that scenario where you're venting and you're sort of the you're uh, setting them up, setting them up to um you're providing context and you're saying, look, mm-hmm. this is happening. I don't, you, you're, I don't want to interrupt things. You're, you're, you're providing that sort of emotional and almost like supportive, empathetic context. And that's like way different from just, I want to complain. Right. 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 Exactly. I mean, so it's like, it's a situation where, you know, you've had those conversations where you know that somebody's thinking about something else while they're listening to you. Um, and it's like, well, what's really going on? Or what else is going on? And that's the stuff that kind of needs to get vented out. Hmm. Um, like, I, I'm often distracted by uh, bad noises in the background. Like, if somebody has a really crappy speaker and they've turned it up too high, um, I find I have a hard time listening to the person who I'm talking with if that's happening in the background. Um, and so I often have to tell somebody that that's what's going on for me. Um, and that it kind of like, it's actually bothers me less, but until I say that, you know, they just know that I'm kind of half listening to them, but something else is also happening. And then they can wonder like, what, what am I saying that you're not, uh, you're not paying attention to me or you're angry with me or like what's some, something's happening. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that's a, that's another kind of a much smaller scale venti moment. Um, <laughs> venti <yeah>. moment. Um, <laughs> well, it, intent, right? Intent's a yeah. huge part of this, is it not? Yeah, it is all about intent. So yes, the, the venting, the intent in that venting is to come back present with a person that you're with. Right. And that's the intention of that. The intention of, uh, problem solving is to solve the problem. 
mm-hmm. um, whether you're talking to somebody who can do something about it or you're asking a friend to help you strategize about how you could actually even deal with it um, or you're making a decision to stop dealing with it and walk away from it. Like the intent is to actually resolve the issue so that it doesn't bug you anymore. Yeah. Um, and then there's complaining. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, like you mentioned stress and stuff. What other kinds of things like in your research and studies did you learn, um, like the complaint, how complaint impacts our health and mental health and physical health? I, so the, like I mentioned the rumination, uh, the definition of rumination is really focusing on a problem over and over again without seeking a solution and, and saying it, um, often out loud, but also just repeating it in your head. And to me, that's the closest thing to my version of unhealthy complaining. Um, and it is a key marker for depression. Um, and it's also a, a thing for, it's, it's related to anxiety. So there's a way that I've interpreted that as um, I feel like chronic complaining actually contributes to getting stuck in a, a anxious or depressive state. Um, and, you know, and of course, this is all different from clinical depression and clinical anxiety. There's there's a lot of different things going on there. But the the um, this has helped people who have dealt with severe depression, anxiety, stress, um, and to take a look at their complaining habits and use that as a a verbal and recognizable externalization of something that they're doing internally and to say like, Oh, well, what if I put my focus on that and stopping that? Mm. And it's been a really good tool, um, for people who want to, uh, find a way out of, you know, basically breaking a cycle. Right. Uh, so, so that's a lot of it. And, you know, when we talk about stress, uh, that has so much that is related to, you know, getting yourself stuck. And then you have, uh, you know, there's a lot of health related things like chronic weight gain or heart problems or all these things that are related to stress that, you know, I'm like, okay, let's, let's just take a look at if we, if we want to extrapolate it all the way down, you know, um, is this one of the things, it's something that I actually want to study more, um, because I think that it's highly likely that, that chronic complaining can actually help get us stuck in the situation that we're complaining about. Right. <laughs> um, and give us more fuel. So that makes uh, sense. Cause we're not, yeah. you know, in that state, we're not thinking about, uh, our emotions constructively and, and trying to understand <laughs> them and learn from them. We're just wanting to, to ruminate, as you say, and to sit in them with no, right. with no, you know, there's a ceiling above us. We just want to kind of sit and, and sit in them and, and, right. and, and sort of seek, you know, I don't know, empathy or, or sort of compassion or, or validation for those, uh, for those complaints from others. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the hardest things, um, for me is that I, I've found that a lot of the most chronic complainers are habitual, unconscious complainers is, is that they are unconscious about it. They don't, um, you know, they, they experience the world as it's horrible and I'm just telling it the way it is. Um, so it's not showing up to them as complaining. Um, and, uh, the other people around them might describe them as complainers, but they would never describe themselves that way. 
So that's one of those kind of tricky things where, you know, you, it's, I think that this is the most effective for people who want to work on their own stuff, know that they're too negative and are looking for a path out of that. Um, and, uh, and when it comes to chronic complaining, that's actually, or habitual unconscious complaining, that's actually the, the difficulty is it's often not recognized. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you meant, you mentioned the word personal responsibility, and I think that's an important part of this because I think a lot of times complaining or, or just, uh, states where we, you know, are sort of stuck emotionally, a lot of times it's like comes from a place of like we're feeling out of control or feeling like we have we we have no power and so why why try to why try you know yeah yeah exactly um and so i ended up i ended up coming up with what somebody described as like the taxonomy of complaints um where i'm trying to figure out like well what are the underlying emotions that are showing up there so which was a tool for me to understand both my own emotions as well as have some empathy for other people that were complaining a lot around me. Um, and one of them is, uh, one of the key ones is actually about loneliness, people who feel unheard. Um, and you know, they're used to having people pay attention to them only when they're complaining, Mm. um, or in pain. And otherwise, they feel overlooked. And that's uh, often a pattern out of family of origin. Um, but it's also something that we we permeate in our culture. Like, we generally don't like people who talk about themselves a lot um, and uh, in positive ways. But if you're in a group and every somebody starts complaining, like, almost all of the attention in the group will go to that person. Hmm. And... And it's a kind of a weird thing. And then this like weird complaint spiral starts where one person's complaining and another person joins in and says, oh, me too in this other way and da da da. And I also had this happen. And then this like it all devolves into complaining in a complaint spiral. So um, so that's one of the main things is that we we complain to bond, but we also complain out of loneliness um, or the desire to feel loved. Um, and uh, and those are those are some of the most common expressions of emotions that are coming out as complaints that I've seen. Um, there's also some weird ones where there's people complain to create alliances. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so like I, the two of us are complaining about that third person over there. Right. Um, so that I know that you and I are together. <laughs> um, <laughs> and for me, I interpret that as, so they're complaining um, because they feel vulnerable in some way or at risk. And so they need to know that, you know, like, who's in my tribe um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, I feel safer um, dealing with whatever situation they're complaining about. Yeah, there's a lot of different emotional things that um, that I've now started to, when somebody's complaining around me, I'm like, oh, can I potentially address that underlying emotion? Or maybe I can get curious to figure out what that underlying emotion is, because the complaint itself is is nothing. The complaint itself is just a sign that something's going on. Right. I have a question from uh, Courtney, who's a Patreon supporter of Yumi Empathy. Thank you, Courtney. Um, Hi, Courtney. <laughs> she <laughs> asked, uh, quote, if the emotions that result in complaining are instead channeled into humor, does this lessen their impact on our negative thinking patterns? 
Ah, conflating and humor. That's a super tricky field for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it, it does, uh, it does lessen the impact in many ways. And it's certainly one of the forms of humor that we're the most comfortable with and used to in this country is, um, is to talk about like things that are going wrong in the world and complaining about them as a way of, um, as, as a way of making comedy. Um, and also that there are a lot of people who complain and are really, really good storytellers. And if they're funny along with it, then, you know, again, go back to the, to the thing where everybody pays attention to the person who's complaining. Well, now if they're also funny, now they're getting a lot of accolades right. for that, you know? And I think that generally I like, I'm, I'm a fan of using humor to dissipate an, an emotional pain um, and to recognize that it's happening, but also not stay in it. So I, th I think that there is a great, uh, great benefit in that. And I have definitely been in a lot of situations where I, I get a kind of a gallows sense of humor and just very dark. Yeah, um, me too. And it's, yeah, and you just recognize that that's what's happening and, you know, kind of can, can get through it by lightening the mood or at least just acknowledging it in a humorous way and saying like, yeah, this is happening, but I'm not going to get stuck here. Um, I think that the, where I say that this is a kind of a dangerous thing for me is there's also a way where it's, it pushes people away from actually engaging with the problem or with the emotions that are underlying their humor in the first place. And so often humor is used to mask a lot of pain mm. and um, it pushes people away from engaging with the actual emotion underneath. Because like I said, you're using it to say like, yeah, I, I recognize that this is happening and, I'm, and I'm, we're gonna push through it. But at some point, you know, it's, it's a healthy thing to actually engage with that emotion. Yeah. And if you rely on humor as your only form of outlet, then ultimately I think that you're not uh, helping yourself because you're not really dealing with what's going on. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's super, super healthy unless you're getting stuck there. And I mean, that's kind of true for anything. Like any, you know, I think it's super healthy to do a lot of things. Like I, well, you know, I, I personally think that it's very healthy for me to go into a doer mode when I'm in grief. Um, but if I get stuck there and I never actually deal with my grief, then the grief is actually extended and it becomes worse. Um, so I need to take a moment and actually force myself to stay still to feel what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who do a lot of humor are in a similar situation where they're engaging with their emotions through humor, but there's a point at which you actually need to stop laughing and start feeling. And that's a very tough order um, sometimes because it's hard to feel all the feels. It is hard. And it, a lot of times those who do make a living, uh, in comedy, you know, you hear all the time that that's coming from like this foundational place where they're, you know, they, that's what they used as children, you know, in their households, you know, as, as a way to kind of, as levity, as a way to sort of, you know, lessen the impact of maybe s some harsh realities that they're dealing with, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. And sometimes the harsh reality is just feeling really isolated and not really knowing how to connect with people. Totally. And so using humor as a stand-in for that, um, which is a really, really good stand-in. And But it's if it's your only, again, anything that becomes your only mode is is insufficient. Yes, indeed.
So I want to talk about the No Complaining Project, this this amazing yeah. thing that you're doing now. <laughs> uh, what what are the types of things that you're doing uh, for the No Complaining Project? Yeah, thanks. I have a book out called uh, No Complaints, How to Stop Sabotaging Your Own Joy. And that is built off of the, you know, for a while I was doing some coaching. I found that to be difficult for me and my schedule. And so I I decided to try to, and I've led um, in-person workshops that are one or two days long. And I've also led some that are like an hour long that are like a little intro to things. I love doing all of those things, but they all felt limited uh, in scope because they depended on my time and they depended on people actually being able to get to me geographically or even through Skype or whatever. Um, But mostly it was constrained by my own time. And I, so I decided to take all of that and try to do a workshop in a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the book is a bunch of fairly short lessons that um, have then some hopefully thought provoking questions after them um, and ask you to then take and their, their reflection questions. So to then reflect in your own world on the, the short lesson that you just had so that you can go through it um, and, and work through it each, each part. Um, And I also broke it down into the overall scope of the no complaining project is goes beyond just getting people to stop complaining. And it's actually into helping people to take action in their world and to, to then feel more empowered and to, to really solve the problems that are out in their world and to have better relationships and to cultivate empathy and to reach out to each other in a way that's much more present. Mm -hmm. So the book goes through three sections. The first part is just awareness where you're recognizing all the different patterns and understanding the triggers and the things that are keeping them in place. The second part is interruption where I introduce some techniques for actively interrupting and changing the patterns um, and, and what you can do uh, in, in those situations where you are feeling like complaining, how to actually interrupt them. And then the third part is replacement. Like once you've interrupted these things, if you don't put anything into that vacuum, because now you're not doing something, um, you actually have to start doing something. You can't just not do something forever because that's just a void. So the replacement section starts walking through some introduction to mindfulness um, and empathy training and some how to handle some difficult conversations, how to, you know, kind of craft your world in a way that you can then, again, you can become more resilient. You can, if you practice these things, then when the world slams you, because it will, then you have more tools at your disposal that you're used to and that you can, you have some habitual uh, healthy patterns that, that you can fall into as opposed to just, you know, getting smacked around. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And then I'm going to be doing a podcast also. um, Oh, cool. And yeah, yeah. Uh, And it is going to go through, First to expand the book um, on all the lessons and uh, and also then to hopefully talk with some folks who are doing this work and who have been inspirational to me. Um, and uh, so the, the putting the podcast together now um, and that'll be coming out. I don't know when because I just need to I just need to get started. <laughs> you just need to do. I just need to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Well, so, I love I love the way you sort of break down the those different sections or those steps in in the book that you're describing. It's like, and I kind of equate it to how we sort of grow through our mental health and emotions is like first, as you pointed out, you kind of recognize that it's happening. Second is like this identification stage, like what is it about? And the third is like the action part. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty it's a it is a system that's applicable to so many different things when we're trying to manifest or create and and make a make a major emotional shift in ourselves or just totally. a change in our lives. Totally. Yeah. Um, as a bonus, I discovered the uh, it has the acronym AIR the way that I write it. So it's oh, awareness nice. interruption replacement. Nice. So talk about it. Giving yourself some air. Yeah. I heard uh, someone else, I think it was like on, I think it's a scientist, uh, I, I listened to this show called Ologies, and she always has, she has, she has ologists on, and <laughs> she had this fearologist on, and she was talking about, I think she described it as RIA, R-I-A, recognize, identify, and then I think the A was action, or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines, but very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a similar framework. Most of the, you know, the work that I do is I read other people's work and I'm good at connecting things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so even, even that, you know, as far as I know, nobody's come up with air, but each of those sections is are totally like, oh, that's a recognizable pattern. I, I understand what that is. Yeah. Um, and I, that's a step that I, that is known. I just wanted something for myself that was made it easier to remember, like, what stage am I in right now? <laughs> we all need air. We all need air. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think it like what you're doing with this, this insight and this research and, and these amazing lessons in terms of complaining, like, is so important because I, I don't know if I've seen much about complaining in the world. And I, I know that we all experience it often, yeah. if not on a daily basis. Yeah, there isn't that much out there directly. But what's interesting to me is that it is included in a lot of different, uh, you know, self-development uh, paths. But often it's sort of just like, you should just stop complaining. And my, my, and I was like, that's a first step for almost everybody. But the thing is, it's, you know, when you actually try to do it, it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, don't get stuck on that first step in the self-development. Let me show you how to get through that part. I need the tools. Uh, here's the tools. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, actually, I don't know why this popped into my head, but the, uh, this one's particularly for your audience. One of the things that I've noticed the most about complaining that I think you'll find fascinating. Um, again, in the world of we pay attention to people to who are complaining a lot um, is I found that it's really, really self-focused and kind of a monologue because you're talking to somebody who can do nothing about it. You're talking about your own problems. You're not listening to any of their contributions, even if they try to say like, well, what about trying this? Then, you know, if you're really in a stuck in a complaint, you're not going to listen to it. You're going to bat that away. Mm. Um, and it becomes a very unempathetic state. Right. So one of the amazing tools for fighting complaining is to recognize that you're not paying attention to your listener and what they might be experiencing while you're talking with them or what they might want to talk about instead. Um, you're not taking a look at their energy about whether or not you're draining them. 
um, or energizing them. Pretty much guaranteed if you're complaining a lot about yourself and not listening to them, then you're just draining them. And so one of the things as a, as a tool um, is to pause for a second and think about your listener mm-hmm. and what is it that they want. And, uh, and, and I, I just thought, Oh, before we, you know, I yeah. want to make sure that I get that in for you. Cause it's like, that was a huge, huge thing for me to realize. And, yeah. um, and it's a really kind of fun way to play with this. Yeah. That's so important. I, I even, you know, I've talked about in the show, I've learned even in doing this podcast that the more active I am in my listening, the more empathy I can express. Yes. Because I am, as you, as you pointed out, I am picking up on what they're laying down. I'm picking up on their emotions and their state and, you know, whether they're impacted by certain things I say. I'm, I'm very attuned to, to them. And, and if, mm-hmm. I, if I do that, I'm present, to use your word, uh, I can be more empathetic. Yeah. 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 And then you end up with much richer conversations. And if you get into a state when you say, you know, you're picking up what they're laying down, you're just listening to them and not just saying like, oh, what can I actually like? Oh, I'm getting ready for my next thing to say back. You sure. Know? Um, yeah. and, and then you're not listening anymore because you're just thinking about your own response as opposed to just saying, oh, what are you talking about over there? Oh, totally. what are you feeling over there? Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Well, um, we will plug all your things at the very end, but let's let's talk about some empathy heroes. These are folks in our lives, whether fiction or, or real, who are, are doing the good work in, in terms of empathy. Mm-hmm. Would you would you like me to go first or do you want do you want to go first? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so my empathy hero this week is the writer Nate Powell who um, worked on the book March. Uh, he illustrated that book with uh, Reverend John Lewis, I think. I think I got that name right. But that's the book that I wanted to call out. Is uh, It's called Swallow Me Whole by Nate Powell. And it's uh, it's a story of mental health. It's a story of, of, of some pretty emotional and tough family dynamics and uh, schizophrenia. And it's... I don't know. It's really, um, I, I, I've been thinking about it lately and I haven't read it in years, but I'm going to reread it. But it's just a beautiful look at how mental health uh, can impact, uh, especially in particular the young. Um, if you have someone in your in your household that is mentally ill and, and, and maybe untreated or uh, misunderstood, um, just the impact of, of those dynamics. And it's really beautiful. It's a graphic novel. And again, it's called Swallow Me Whole uh, by Nate, Nate Powell. So Nate that Powell is my empathy hero. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking about it in terms of my empathy hero this week. I was listening to an interview with um, the founders of The Bale Project, uh, Robin Steinberg and Dave Feige? Feige? I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. Um, and... Uh, they are two lawyers who work in a borough of New York and uh, they started to, they recognized that there were a lot of people who were stuck in pre-trial and had their lives fall apart because they couldn't afford very, very small amounts of money. Things that were, you know, a thousand dollars or less, like two hundred and fifty, five hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, but because they were 
poor and disproportionately therefore also of color, um, they were stuck there. And, you know, they're often people who are working in jobs where you get paid by the day or the hour um, or they had childcare or, you know, they, they didn't have money for childcare, but they had to, they had to do a lot of things for their lives that they couldn't do when they were stuck in jail. Um, and when they started to see this pattern, they, they started, Robin in particular, um, she recognized like how her own expectations of the justice system and of, uh, you know, what, how it worked were really coming out of her position as a woman who was white and who had money. Um, and she got really grounded in what these people were going through and decided to do something about it. And so they founded this thing called the bail project, which just provides bail, um, for people so that they don't have to have their lives fall apart. Wow. That's um, so cool. It was so cool. And, and they're just, they've just recently rolled it out nationwide. Um, cause it's been operating in uh, New York for a while. And, and I just was so inspired and I thought it was incredible. And, and it came out of her, uh, ability to step outside of herself and to see what was really going on, um, around her. So that, uh, I think that, that they are my, the bail project, my empathy heroes, Robin and David. Beautiful. I love that. And, uh, for you listeners, I'll, I'll make sure to link Nate Powell's book and the bail project in the show notes for this episode. So, uh, Sienna, before we go, um, where where can people connect with you, learn more about the No Complaining Project, and and buy your book? Yeah, uh, the my website is go noco g o n o c o, which is my shorthand for going no complaining. Um, so go noco dot com, and I'm also on Facebook at the face at uh, the No Complaining Project on Facebook. Um, you can buy No Complaints: How to Stop Sabotaging Your Own Joy just about everywhere. So you can, if you want to support your local bookstore, you can go there um, and order it. You can go on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's online. Um, there's probably, there may be other places online. And very soon I will also be um, putting a bookstore up on gonoco.com where you can get the book directly and you can also order some of the other books. I have a whole list of books um, at the end of my book that I consider great starters for um, the the work overall if somebody wants to go deeper after they've gone through uh, the no complaining stuff. Um, so I'll have links to all of those and I want to sell them at a discount so people can get them and create uh, no complaining practice groups and stuff like that. So that's coming soon. Um, but you can subscribe at, uh, gonoco.com and, um, and just find me. I'm also on Twitter at Siana, C-I-A-N-N-A. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, again for being on You Me Empathy, Siana. I really appreciate you and, uh, what you're doing, uh, in the world. Thank you. I'm, I'm also appreciating you and for bringing this honest, open conversation about emotions and mental health and, and the desire to connect with other people. I really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you. you. And for you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. <laughs>